This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Home Gadget Geek show number 585 with guest Christian Johnson, recorded on September 21st, 2023. Here on Home Gadget Geeks, we cover all the favorite tech gadgets that find their way in your news reviews, product updates, and conversation all for the Average Tech Guy. I'm your host, Jim Collison, broadcasting live from the AverageGuy.tv studios here in a beautiful Bellevue, Nebraska. Spring is on its way. Woohoo! No, what am I saying? Fall is on its way. Spring in Australia, maybe. Of course, we post a show with some world-class show notes. I have no idea where my mind is tonight. Uh, out at the AverageGuy.tv. Big thanks to Paul Brayern, who joined us last week. He's always good. He's a fan favorite, and Everybody loves to have Paul on. Paul did a great job. Paul, thanks for jumping in here. He's he's had quite a busy last 18 months. And if you haven't caught it yet, Home Gadget Geeks 584. Get that checked out today. Big thanks to our Patreon subscribers as well. If you're finding value in the podcast and you want to give back, you want to join that, that helps us kind of do some stuff around here. Theaverageguy.tv slash Patreon will get you there as well. Christian is back, and Christian, always great to have you on Home Gadget Geeks. And thanks for letting me just fold Cyber Frontiers into Home Gadget Geeks. Slotty's here. Yeah. Welcome back. No, right on. <laughs> Good to be back. Um, always glad that the uh, remnants of Christian's Corner and or Cyber Frontiers and or the other esoteric topics that I like to get into uh, still have a home here. So it's Oh, yeah. Be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and tonight, I think we're going to cover all of those things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's kind of kind of reminiscent of the old home tech days uh, when you're on and some Cyber Frontiers before that. But but always good to have you back. Okay. A major event happened in your life uh, between last show and this show. You, and I don't even know how to say it. You got your pilot's license or something. You alluded to that. I think we talked, but you got it. Talk, talk a little bit about that experience update. Yeah, right on. Um, it's, it's been a great adventure. Um, I completed my student solo in mid August, um, which is essentially the first time that, uh, you are out there on your own. Um, the actual student solo is fairly simple though. In, in a sense, it's three takeoff and landings in the pattern. And that kind of makes you current for the license that you hold. So, um, the actual flying part of your first student solo is fairly straightforward. Um, but then, you know, once you have that and you're properly endorsed in your logbook, that allows you to be exercising the privileges of a student pilot, which pretty much means, you can fly by yourself, but you can't carry passengers yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, since then, I've been working both my student uh, solo hours as well as working what's called the cross-country legs that have to be done as part of the full private pilot license. And so that's flying. That cross-country sounds really impressive big, but really it's just a minimum of 50 nautical miles between two different airports. Okay. So I've actually done two uh, 70 nautical mile trip practices with my instructor, one um, to uh, Lancaster and one to Harrisburg. Uh, really cool approaches, especially the Harrisburg approach, because uh, as you approach Harrisburg, you have Three Mile Island on the right-hand side where the uh, nuclear kind of uh, a- event took place in the 80s. That There's a really good uh, documentary on Netflix, if you haven't caught it, that kind of goes into that whole craze. But then as you cut left away from the nuclear plant, if it's a clear sunny day, you just get this beautiful um, 
overlook on the Susquehanna. You got the uh, Harrisburg city skyline right there. You're coming right into the airport and the main runway is about maybe 12 feet from the river. Uh, and so it's really cool. Uh, Towered airport. I would say it's like a small terminal version of BWI. So it's a true regional airport. And uh, yeah, within like 20 or 30 seconds of landing a uh, Boeing 737 from Allegiant came in right behind me. Um, so it's just, it's been a really great experience. It's been a um, hobby that the best way I can describe it is you can do a lot of hobbies in life where you might be going through the motions of doing that hobby, but your brain might be elsewhere. Um, and for me, it's really easy to be thinking about work while I'm still doing something else. Um, but if you're thinking about work while flying an airplane, it's probably not going to go too well for you. Um, you're probably <laughs> not going to be up there very long. So um, it's been a really great hobby in the sense that um, totally out of my elements, learning how to fly, didn't have any background, didn't know anyone that was previously a pilot, you know, just kind of jumped into a, a whole new world uh, cold. And um, I thought one of the fun things to do, not because I think this is like average tech or average gadgets that people are going to be going out and buying, but that'd be kind of fun to walk through some of the gadgets that have made uh, my piloting journey so far successful. Um, just because I think it's a cool testament to how much technology is also impacting general aviation. And I'm not really talking about your, you know, ATP airline captains and your big, you know, United Southwest, et cetera. But I am talking about the people that are doing recreational private pilot flying, instrument rated flying, et cetera, and how they're leveraging um, everyday gadgets to replace things that um, were very manual if you were learning how to be a private pilot, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so it is a cool technology space in and of itself, um, as well as a lot of cool practical skills that come out of uh, having to learn how to fly. Yeah, I remember flying Omaha to Centennial in Denver, uh, the airport there. I was going out to do some speaking. A buddy, I said, hey, I could, you know, I was telling him I was going out there. And he, he said, well, I could fly you out there. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he flew me out there. That's the last time I'm ever getting in a small aircraft like that again. It scared the daylights out of me. Like I just was not the, and, you know, and I know, listen, what kind of aircraft it, was it? Do you remember? Cessna yeah. four seater, you know, um, you know, so it pretty, not, not slow, but not fast. And then, you know, it rode, Every, you could feel every bump oh, yeah. and I just, that it just, that was unsettling to me. And, you know, and then on the way back, he was like, well, I'm not rated to do equipment landing and Omaha's fogged in. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to wait. <laughs> so he spent the night in Centennial. He's, what are you going to do? Right. Your aircraft is there. So, well, congrats, congrats on getting that. Uh, um, it's a big deal. And you got, you've got some things to, I mean, you still got some things to go until you can take passengers. Right. And so yeah. that stuff. So. Yeah, so I'll be doing what's called a stage two check in October, and that's essentially um, making sure all your navigation skills and some of the latter, later stage maneuvers like short and soft field takeoff and landings are all looking good. Um, making sure your radio navigation is solid, um, and that pretty much gives you the green light to then get the endorsements in your logbook to repeat your cross-countries solo. Um, and that's really the last major solo activity before you can take the final truck ride with the FAA. Um, so I'll get those two knocked out here in the fall. 
and I have one um, nighttime flight left to finish, and then uh, I'm good for the check ride. So um, nighttime flights actually misunderstood because a lot of people assume that you need to be instrument rated to fly at night, but you can fly at night under VFR rules and conditions. Um, so you're not required. Meaning you can see everything visual. Yeah, you right. Yeah. There's no obstructions. Yeah. Right, right, right. And um, and so you know that is a privilege you can exercise as well as a private pilot. Um, and you can there's daytime currency and nighttime currency as a VFR pilot. Um, but yeah, you can fly as long as you're within those currency um, regulations. And so I'm kind of hoping by December we can complete the check ride for the full uh, cool. private pilot license. And then uh, in parallel to that, um, depending on how long it takes to get the check ride scheduled, I'll be uh, starting my instrument training um, in parallel. Nice. So we're nice. just going to keep on going cool. through. Cool. Yeah. Good work. John wanted to know if you in Harrisburg there, if you took off over the river. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we came in uh, on approach uh, on runway 31, and then when you take off, it's right back over the Susquehanna heading back towards Maryland. Uh, so it's a really cool uh, both approach and departure. Cool. Uh, Brian checking in with a, with a congratulations, and then he wants to know uh, what, what plane are you flying? Are you, yeah, everything I'm flying right now is a Cessna uh, 172. Um, I, tr I normally fly the M model, which is a 1975-76 aircraft, uh, pretty old school stuff. Um, that still is a, um, you know, like manual carburetor heat and you're controlling, um, uh, you know, priming the fuel, etc., um, I've also flown the S model, which is much newer. Um, those have the, this, this particular one has the full Garmin 1000 NXP avionics panels. It has autopilot. It is a much newer aircraft, maybe late nineties, early two thousands. Um, and it is, um, fuel injected. So, um, the start sequence is a bit different, but, but newer spec for sure. Um, so even within, you know, when someone says a 172, that can mean a lot of different things based on what letter is at the end of that statement. Um, but really, most of the fleets that you'll see in the greater DC area, um, M model is probably going to be on the oldest side. And most of them are, you know, you'll see M, N, R, P, S are pretty common for trainer aircraft and a Cessna 172. Um, and then uh, moving into next year, uh, we're looking at a couple options. Um, one would be to upgrade to a um, 182T, which is a turbocharged, much larger on the inside. You're going to get uh, much better cruise performance, has much uh, greater carrying capacity, um, easy to maintain, um, well-known aircraft. It's basically the 172, but bigger, better, better, etc. Um, other thing that uh, there's discussion, um, st I've started a, a small group of uh, co-pilots who are interested in uh, potentially doing things together long-term who are either have their private pilots or starting to work on their instrument. So all kind of in a similar place uh, on the training um, and also looking at uh, Cirrus, which has become the most popular general aviation brand and took that title from Cessna when they um, created the first uh, Cirrus G1 back in 99, I think was when the first one was out, maybe a little earlier. Uh, but they are through 
six different generations of Cirrus at this point, and they have two models. They have an SR20 and an SR22, and then they also have a turbocharged version of the SR22, and those things are blazing fast. So, like, for comparison, a 172M, you're lucky at max cruise performance. If you get a good headwind, maybe you're doing 120 knots. Um, in a Cirrus SR22, you can do anywhere from 200 to 220 knots. So it's, it's about double in terms of what you're going to do for, uh, personal travel. And it's all full glass, you know, much newer aircraft, uh, composite material, com- composite paint, much newer, just newer, everything pretty much from Cessna, um, and Cessna took a stab at trying to be like Cirrus. They um, released a, uh, they created an aircraft called the Cessna TTX in about 2014. And it just, it didn't pick, it didn't take off, I think, the way they had hoped. And so you can find them on the market um, and they do, they have retained their value. But really in terms of who is selling the most new airframes right now, I mean, Cirrus walks away with it. Um, one of the things that Cirrus is best known for or was kind of uniquely invented was the uh, cap system, which is, you know, uh, literally, if if you're in trouble, you can pull a double safety handlebar overhead and a parachute is going to bring the whole aircraft down to the ground. Basically. So it's a parachute system wow. for the airplane. They, wow. they very tightly pack and compress that parachute into the plane. It, the only maintenance required is every 10 years, they have a what's called a CAPS repack where they repack the parachute and make sure everything is um, in working order. Um, and so, you know, that is one of the areas that I think people really got captivated by Cirrus when it first came out, but they've made major substantive improvements in each subsequent generation. And what's also impressive is that for the speed the aircraft gets, um, it's a fixed landing gear aircraft, so you can't retract the landing gear to get more speed, airspeed. So it's impressive that, you know, really it is the, I would argue it's the um, fastest uh, single piston aircraft that is in that four seater size that doesn't have a retractable landing gear um, and is a very high tech um kind of way to, to do aviation. Um, it is a low wing, uh, aircraft. Um, I have loved flying high wing to be honest, really, because just the, the, the view angle is really, uh, awesome. There's obviously easy, you know, that's easily addressed by, you know, tilt your nose, change your heading a little bit. You'll, you'll get the angle you want to get. Um, but I've really enjoyed, uh, flying the high wings. Uh, it's, it's a very cool experience, but, um, Cirrus has definitely become um, a very popular aircraft. And I think one of the things that people really are surprised to hear about who are not, you know, living general aviation on a regular basis is just how long these airframes last. And that's one of the leading reasons why you can fly a plane that's 50 or 60 years old. And, you know, people might think like, gee, like I'm not driving a car that's 50 or 60 years old. Why am I getting in an airplane that's 50 or 60 years old? And like, so it's a little bit unsettling at first, but you, you kind of learn and realize that the airframes are rated for just incredible number of hours. So like a Cessna 172 airframe is rated for, I think up to like 12,000 hours oh, wow. of flight. Yeah. And the engines are rebuilt in their entirety. Every single piece is taken apart and put back together as part of the maintenance requirements about every 2,000 hours. 
So in a way, the airframes are retaining their value long-term. And if you're taking care of the furnishings, the paint job, et cetera, you know, it's amazing how much you can upgrade these planes in terms of their avionics and their instrumentation. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, really like I have a a partial glass display in that 172M. You wouldn't have had that if you were flying it back in 1976, but it's a bit of a different aircraft when you're flying it with those types of instruments. Um, and you know, uh, well, they're, they're common enough too that they can make upgrades to them that people are going to buy and then install. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one, one thing that's been really interesting to see is just how these, you know, much older aircraft have retained their value and they're going up in value and flight schools are competing for them on the open market to try and grab up as many of them as they can, because they're not being produced in the quantities that used to be produced in. And some might argue that there's a lot more value in learning how to fly an Cessna first before learning how to fly something like a Cirrus. Um, it's a bit of a different way to start out flying. Um, and so Cirrus actually has a Cirrus transition program. It's only about 10 hours of training, but the idea is to kind of accustom you to the differences flying between a traditional aircraft like a Piper or a Cessna and the Cirrus, especially because, you know, like one of the big control differences is the Cirrus is much more like a joystick. You're literally controlling a joystick on the pilot side, whereas, you know, a Cessna or a Piper is traditional um, yoke um, control. So, um, yeah, some nuances there that it would be interesting to start flying. Uh, there's plenty of pilots that do. They start right from the beginning on, on Cirrus, but um, I have really enjoyed flying like, gee, this is what they were flying 56 years ago. This is still what they're flying and training in today. And then here are all the ways that we've retrofitted these planes or retrofitted training or understanding to make these planes more fun, more safe to fly even today. And so like the plane I fly, I think has total engine time around uh, 4,600 hours. And yeah, that means they're going to be able to rebuild the end. It's made it 60 years and probably could be rebuilt another four or five times before they're like, okay, we really got to put this thing in the trash. It's done. Um, Which is just unbelievable. uh, The the airspeed doesn't put as much stress on the, on the body because it's pretty low airspeed, right? For the most part. Uh, Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, one of the important things though, is there are, of course, dumb ways you can make that airspeed be (laughs) higher than what it should. So like if you're staying below maneuvering speed and you're not like trying to pull G's or donuts in the sky or spin it out of control, like it's like, it's like a car, right? Like you could take a junker and beat the heck out of it and make it go probably way faster than it should. Um, Similar things with the plane. However, um, yeah, generally speaking, um, you're not going to see the same types of load factors on a 172 trainer that you're going to see on either larger or faster aircrafts. Yeah. I mean, if you took a 74, a vehicle built in 74 and you treated it like they treat their aircraft, keep them indoors, keep them clean, rebuild the engine from time to time, right? Do all those maintenance things. It would probably last just as long, right? I mean, so... It's um, it's cool. You mentioned some gadgets. Let's let's talk or, or or some things from a technology perspective. What else? You mentioned a few, but have you bought anything for this that you've been using? Yeah, well, um, one of the things that you realize with aviation is that it's a uh, 
burning a hole in your wallet exercise like you wouldn't believe. Um, but uh, it's uh, you just go to bed smiling every night how much fun you had. So you know, you just try not to think about that part. Um, but I think I mentioned this maybe on the last post show on Home Gadget Geeks. I don't know if it caught the recorded edition not, but um, one of the big personal challenges that I've been able to overcome in learning how to fly has been motion sickness. I've just mm. been historically always very prone to motion sickness, put me on a, a spinny ride or put me out to sea and I'm like dead. Um, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised the first time I got up in the sky and it was not much better of an experience. Um, and when you're motion sick, it's not like you're... <sighs> There's a difference between motion sickness, the type of reaction you have with motion sickness and the type of reaction you have in like, oh, I'm ill, like I, I caught a bug and I'm and I'm vomiting, right? There's definitely a um, an anxiety response that happens. Your your brain is pretty out of it uh, when you get deeply motion sick and you just physically feel like I, you know, I'm done. Um, and um that's obviously pretty distracting when you're like trying to learn how to fly. Um, so I wasn't sure, uh, how I was going to get through it at first. Um, and yeah, I did a fair amount of research on this, that, and the other thing. And so, you know, some of the common things that people will tell you are like, well, have you looked at these, you know, FDA approved, uh, medications, but like you have to be really careful. Number one, because there's a very, of those list of medications, there's very few that are going to be approved by the FAA if you're going to be a pilot. Um, and then number two, like, I I didn't like the thought of having to be dependent on something to be in the sky as a pilot safe. So I thought about this for a while and I thought, well, exposure therapy doesn't sound like the most you know enticing thing in the world, but eh, let's give it a try. So, you know, we would go up there on both calm days and brutal days. I mean, we're talking like north of 20 knots, um, which doesn't sound like a big deal. Um, but if you're motion sick, it feels like you're on the worst ride of your life at Disney World, um, especially when you're doing a landing approach and you feel like the aircraft's going like this and you have your horizon is it doesn't matter how many times someone tells you to stare at their horizon like it just isn't working for you um and so one of the first big changes i made which you know maybe is obvious for some but uh is very similar to what they tell you if you get seasick is um focus on eating and drinking a ton before you get in that plane or on that boat um, seems so counterintuitive. And it seems really <laughs> it seems really counterintuitive. Yeah. Especially because for the first while, all I would do is throw up, you know, the like yeah. have a good breakfast, like yeah. stay really hydrated, uh, go out early in the morning when it's still cool. Um, but I would say that actually delayed getting motion sick by a bit. Mm. Not like anything that was gonna be game changer, but bought me a little bit more time in the sky. Um, then I started realizing like, gee, I need to come better prepared to like, you know, lose the entire inner contents of my body. So I would start bringing boxes of Ziplocs in my mm -hmm. airbag or in my, you know, my go bag basically for, for flying. And um, yeah, only like 
one time, one, one bag and I was done, you know, we turned back. And so I was like, huh, I have to figure out how can I get more exposure without having to, you know, turn back and go in, but push through it. So, um, two things. One, uh, breathing makes a huge difference. How you're controlling your breathing during that kind of anxiety climb to the motion sickness and even after can play a big role in how long it takes you to kind of go through a cycle of motion sickness. And that's not something that people really tell you, really tell you to focus on. But it was something I noticed is that when I could catch deeper breaths for more concentrated periods of time, I could I could defer some of the worst side effects of motion sick. But again, none of this stuff I'm talking about, I mean, most people to hear me come back talking about this stuff and think this dude's like actually, you know, batshit crazy at this point. Like I would <laughs> never do this. Um, so I was like, okay, like what's a real aid that I can deploy that is not a drug is not, you know, anything mental that can help me work through this. And so the first, this was a very long introduction to the first gadget, <laughs> but the first gadget is this really cool little watch looking widget. Um, and it's called a relief band and it has, um, it's a very simple interface, has a power button on the front, has five different light indicator and power modes from one to five. And on the back of the device, you have two basically, uh, electro, uh, stimulating pads and what it, it just comes in a simple pouch and what comes with the device is this basically, uh, hypoallergenic, uh, gel. And so the way it works is inside the gadget, um, if I were to open this compartment and uh, pull this up tab out, you can see it's two CR2032 batteries that powers the device. And what it does is it actually sends a continuous uh, pulse of uh, electroactivity through the device. And it's, you know not too dissimilar from shocking your dog, except it's a little bit of a different modulation we're going for here. And you use this gel and you actually uh, position it on your wrist and you're looking to place it in these two kind of main uh, nerve nerve veins that are, are going up your arm. And the, uh, the electric signal is actually gonna go up your arm into your, into your brain neurologically and then travel down to your stomach. And what it actually is doing is it's stimulating your vagus nerve. And so it's calming this kind of, if you think of your stomach as having these unstable waves, um, it's calming that type of behavior and that type of signaling in your body. And so this is a non-drug approach to trying to get um, some motion sickness relief, which um, it was very interesting to find out that a lot of pilots, like when they first starting out this is you know not an uncommon issue for a lot of folks um but of all the people that my flight instructor has had quit because of motion sickness um none of them had he had never heard about this device he had never tried it etc um and it really is for all types of motion sickness it's not really just for hey i'm going to be up in a plane it's for boats it's for um amusement rides etc and so um, the FDA has rated and approved the device. It has an 85% effectiveness in the, um, in the uh, studies, in the clinical studies, uh, of having some amount of relief uh, for motion sickness. So I was like, okay. 
It's about $150 on Amazon. I was like, well, at $165 an hour of flying this thing in the sky, I may as well see if I can, you know, turn that one hour into two hours. So seems like a pretty decent investment. And um, what was fascinating about it is that starting out, it didn't stop the motion sickness, which is at first it was a bummer, but what I realized was I felt great after like 30 seconds. And I was like, wow, mm. like that's a game changer. And usually after, know, after vomiting, you yeah, felt after like a full vomit, full experience. Like, Oh, that was awful. And then 30 seconds, I was like, Oh, I feel fine again. Let's go. And I just like, that was such a breakthrough moment that this gadget got me to, it really allowed my idea of exposure therapy to take off. So then, I mean, at some of the peaks of, the exposure therapy, I'm talking flights where like four or five different bags had to be deployed. And, you know, people are completely grossed out and like, dude, you're insane at this point. But like that device got me through the motion sickness. And because it has those different power intensity levels, as I was progressing through my training, right, my end goal is I don't want to be dependent on anything to be able to fly, not even a relief band. Um, so I would slowly start backing down the power increments as I was getting less and less motion sick over time to the point where I just stopped wearing the wristband altogether. And somewhere around, you know, as a student pilot right now, I've done 113 landings and I've done 61.3, uh, flight hours. And I would say somewhere around the 20 to 25 hour mark, it was like that switch finally flipped in my brain where, didn't matter what the wind speed was. Didn't matter what the conditions were. Didn't matter what angle of the horizon was like it was gone. Um, and so I haven't worn that relief band in over 40 hours of flying. And that motion sickness is just, it's not something I even think about anymore. Um, which would have been a kind of a quick end to the whole hobby if this type of gadget yeah. didn't exist. Um, so I love telling people about it who, you know, yeah, they might not be going in a plane anytime soon, but like there's a lot of other situations and a lot of other people who experience motion sickness where this type of gadget might be key. Um, so I really just thought that yeah, this was awesome. And yeah, they come in some different styles and some different contours. That looks like uh, one of the higher end ones. Yeah, that was the, the, the per, two two seventy nine. I mean, the highest price on these things is less than three hundred. I mean, I paid yeah. pay more for an Apple Watch than than, yeah, exactly. than these. Right, this is the sport version of it. We're showing on screen for for two fifty. I mean, in your experience, uh, here's the Flex uh, for one seventy nine. Yep. And then they've got the the classic, what they call the classic. That's I think yeah, that's that's, that's what I have is the classic for one hundred and fifty. The um, I, I looked up this vagus nerve because I hadn't heard it before, and it said the vagus nerve is involved in regulating important body functions, including breathing, heart rate, digestion, and immune response. It also plays an important role in con controlling mood. I'm sorry, mood, emotions, and social behavior. Did you see any uh, positive side effects? beyond you know helping you and, and maybe this was part of getting through it but did you sense any of those other benefits of it as you were as you were wearing it as well in, in those areas um you know i think it, it's certainly mood not not particularly i mean my mood was very focused on trying to fly the aircraft trying to control the the response but i would say i wouldn't be surprised if it helped quite a bit with the actual that I, it's like the anxiety climax drop off phase of the yeah, motion sickness. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so 
if that's kind of the contour in which they mean mood, I think absolutely, because that is a big part in what holds you back from feeling like you can go through that experience again. Um, social behavior, not so much. Emotions, not so much. Um, definitely, though, the breathing and the um, ability to handle the kind of that stomach response. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they say in this article here, and I'll have all these links in the show notes if you want to go out and look at them, but it says the vagus nerve is sometimes called the wandering nerve because of many of the different parts of the body it interacts with. Stimulating vagus nerve can also have calming effects on the body, which I think is what yeah. you were looking for, right? That recovery, because you were going into it while it was still happening, you were going into it. Man, I think about uh, for folks who, you know, in boating or in you know, maybe any of those situations where that's debilitating. Yeah. Uh, this could be, you know, this could be one of those things. And so how long, how long did you use the watch? You're off of it now, right? At this yeah. point, you're not, you're not using, would you consider bringing it back for, for any reason at some point or, or you're good. You feel like you're good at this point. I mean, unless I was like in hurricane conditions out at sea and felt like, gee, this might be a good thing to have just in yeah. case, like maybe. Yeah. But I mean, my goal with it was to not have it become a crutch where, oh, I'm only going to be in the plane if this thing is zapping my arm. Um, but um, I keep it in the flight bag as like an honorary, like it's there. It's pretty small to stow. So like there's no harm in, in, in having it and keeping it. Um, but no, I mean, for me personally, like I said, it was about, 20 to 25 hours of use of flight time of the 61 hours that I've logged. So about a third of my journey. Um, and if I were to put out on like a, a chart, because um, my pilot journey has been around November 16th of last year was my first flight. And I did a couple flights in November and December. The first kind of experiences with motion sickness were a bit enough for me. So work and other stuff was pretty busy. And that on top, I was kind of thinking about, okay, what's my next move here? So I took January, February, and most of March off. And then in the last week of March, I got back into it and had the relief band. And, you know, you can plot out like, what was my kind of productivity or advancement against the hours that I was doing in the logbook. And you can see just how much the relief band accelerated that. So even though I've been flying for almost a year in November, really my core training to get where I've gotten today has been six months of very focused two times a week. I'm out there flying, I'm working with the instructor, I'm doing ground instruction at home, et cetera. Um, and that definitely wouldn't have been possible without the relief band, but definitely for a good third of that journey, it was the way that I was able to get to that six months of really core focus uh, in, in, in doing the, the pilot training. Yeah. Now that sounds cool. I wonder if you could compare that to your, do you, do you get any watch data? Are you wearing any kind of, any watch that's doing any kind of health? I'm not, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, my wife wears the Apple watch uh, every day and loves it and has all the health data. And I guess I'm, I'm an old fart in that respect. No, I just, no, I just, just don't have it, one. <laughs> it would be interesting to correlate, you know, to have the relief band on one side and the Apple watch on the other, or whatever there's, there's a variety. Apple's not the only one in this space, but um, 
to to kind of see what kind of health conditions yeah that would that would bring uh, maybe even i mean okay, you get you got me kind of thinking on this thing now it's kind yeah. of cool from like even from just a regular wear uh, on a regular basis of or yeah, sleeping with it i wonder what that you know if that maybe for some it would keep them awake right because obviously do you feel it do you feel the physical stimulation as it's happening on the higher power yeah. settings definitely um it's you know if it's on like full power setting it might even be a little uncomfortable depending on your weight how tightly yeah. you have it installed how much gel yeah. you have etc but certainly on a low power setting it you know after a while you would you would forget it's there mm-hmm. yeah I just think of maybe for individuals who have, and sometimes I have a tendency I'll mess with my, like I'll pinch my fingers in a, in a response to just, it's if I'm agitated or if I'm stressed, you know, I kind of, and that's a obvious pain response. I'm doing that to stimulate something in on, on my body. Wondering if this could be one of those devices for stress where, you know, you might, if you're feeling, if you're feeling stressed, that may be one of those things with, something like this and a little meditation practice or something along those lines. Yep. I don't know. Sounds interesting. Yeah, no, right on. But it was, a, it was a cool yeah. gadget to introduce only because I just feel that a lot of people, even in my own life, didn't know about it. And it certainly yeah. has a lot of applications outside of no, flying. Right on, so. right on. Well, and you've got a story like, I mean, just think <laughs> filling bags <laughs> to, to not at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I think Brian. John asked John asked earlier if the if the CFI charged extra for that service, and uh, yeah, um, he's been very kind and patient, and uh, zip it up and put it back in the bag. Oh, cool! Um, <laughs> just can't imagine. Uh, Brian says, figure uh, if you buy meds for nausea enough, buying this device would pay for itself. And and to your point, I mean, man, if you can have a mechanical device that would help you overcome that. Yeah, as opposed to uh to to a you know to drugs, right? I yeah, I mean, I I for me the drugs was really like a it was a red line for me. I mean, maybe yeah. if I really got beat down that like nothing else is working, I would try one of the FAA approved drugs just to see if that would be enough to jumpstart me. But um, it's really so awesome that yeah, you don't have to ingest anything in your body to to get the benefits. It's like there's really not many things out there that that can do that for you. So, a little bit of gel, put it on, yeah. set set the dial it in. I'm assuming those numbers yep. are are what what one through um, five. Yeah, yeah. The power level. And how does it charge? Is it a? It's got the batteries. Is that what you were showing earlier? Is it, yeah. So there's yeah. different models. So um, the higher end models have like a USB-C charger and the base model, like the one that I have is just two CR2032 batteries. So once they're done, you're replacing them much like you would replace a CR2032 battery in your watch. How long do they last generally for you? You know, it's interesting. It depends on use, right? Mine did not last as long as I think. And I wonder if I had accidentally left it on um, after one of the trainings. So that's something that's kind of easy to do because they say it should last, you know, for dozens of hours. Um, but yeah, you can see the sport is the USB rechargeable model, the premier and the sport. And then the other two are battery replaceable. Um, and you can see, yeah, the rating on the flex, which would be pretty comparable. They're saying 350 hours. I definitely did not make it to even a third of that. So even if you want to say the classic is half as good as the flex, I did not make it to 150 hours. Yeah. So I think I must've left it on accidentally one day. So 
No, that's cool. Well, it looks like the Flex is the upgraded classic, and yes. then they've added Sport and, and Premier to it. So cool. Well, that, no, that is a that's a very that's a very cool uh, uh, gadget. I didn't yeah. anticipate. <laughs> you know, yeah. you're like, huh? I have to keep that. Well, especially for people that struggle with motion sickness, and it's awful. I mean, it, no, was, right on. It, was, it was just awful. So, so very cool. Well, let's transition a little bit into maybe something not so cool. And we'll do a little cyber frontiers segment here as we think about the world of what's going on at MGM right now and kind of the madness for those who don't know, give us a little synopsis and then maybe a little commentary what's happening in MGM. Yeah. Um, it's funny cause, uh, we were out for our annual haunt at DEF CON this year and, um, my experience checking into an MGM owned property was interestingly within like 20 minutes of being there, their automated kiosk systems were not working. So you would go to check in, it would scan your driver's license. It would find who you were. And then the system was just like lost. And so we managed to get there earlier enough that like we were able to get a person before the line, like out across the, the uh, casino started forming, but I was like, huh, DEF CON starting early this year. If, you know, we've already arrived and automatic check-in isn't working, but um, yeah, within a month, uh, this, this article kind of comes into the full four where um, really all the classic things that we've talked about so many times on cyber frontiers, right? Um, Okta was the, um, identity management vendor for MGM resorts. And so they were running a lot of key systems that run the casino network, the hotel reservation network, like pretty much core business functions of this company. Um, And uh, this all started with basically very poor reporting in American media in the sense that um, this was happening for several days and no one was covering it. And it was like, it blew my mind to how hush hush all this was. Um, but essentially, you know, classic story of a sophisticated fishing campaign, um, social engineering, um, working the phones, they were able to compromise MFA related credentials for super administrators move laterally through the system And I haven't had a chance to study the full amount of information that is out there, but what some of the initial reporting is saying is that, you know, there was lateral movement in their systems in ways that were novel, that weren't just your traditional, you know, once they got the foothold, what came next was not traditional at all. And what's really fascinating about it is that if you've ever been to Vegas, most of the properties on the Strip now are pretty much owned by one of two major companies, MGM Resorts or Caesar Forum. So if it's not Caesar, it's not MGM, I'm not saying there are other big names on the strip, but they own a lot of the real estate on the strip. And Caesar's got hit with this kind of same thing um, several weeks prior to MGM and no one heard about it. It wasn't reported at all. And why? As we come to find out only after the fact, Caesar is like, this is above our pay grade. We're paying these guys off because we're, we're not dealing with this. So they paid off the ransomware and they walked, you know, I don't want to say scot-free, but clearly whatever amount they paid is much less than the 8.7 million estimated per day that MGM has been losing in trying to deal with this. So MGM was like, we're not negotiating with the hackers. So their response was to shut down all of their systems. And I mean, pretty much all of their systems, which meant 
You were only playing in the casinos on machines that took cash. No one was booking in or doing online reservations. So, I mean, pretty crippling for a resort and entertainment industry um, like MGM. And so it's still just, you know, my commentary is pretty simple on this one. It still amazes me how effective um, uh, phishing is uh, and and really the social engineering piece. And I kind of uh, remember uh, every year, you know, at least every two or three years, we try to go to the social engineering village at DEF CON and they go into the soundproof phone booth and they call a random company and they see how far they can get. And it's just, you sit there and you're, you're so impressed how many people it's just like a, I, I don't know. It's like a, almost an automated natural response for people to want to provide information for a variety of different social pressure points that, that, adversary can apply right sometimes it can be you know job related stress of like you know i'm going to escalate this to your supervisor so it can be that type of like veiled threat um other times it can be just you know i'm a harmless nice guy i'm looking for information i'm running a survey for your company i mean the the quantities and different types of ways that people get creative and really uh hacking human um social uh capabilities for lack of a better phrase is pretty unbelievable and if you're good at it there seems to be ample amounts of zero day ammunition in the toolkit for attackers to leverage once they get that initial foothold um so pretty impressive uh pretty surprising um fascinating how long it took the media to um care about covering it this was a 10-day outage for mgm so about um 80 to 90 million of lost uh i don't know if that's revenue or profit yeah uh but i mean just insane um so i thought i thought this was a very splashy not really a data breach in the kind of the classic sense um Maybe there is data that's been stolen that we don't even know about yet that would make it more of a data breach. I don't think we really have that information. They had that kind of lateral access. Yes. What Um, what got downloaded? Everything, probably. Um, Right. right? Absolutely. And um, I just think that it's fascinating that we still have headlines in the space that ransomware, you know, we, we see so many different enterprise products around ransomware this. You buy an AV product even for the home, and it talks about all the ways it's going to protect ransomware. But yet, uh, here we are, and um, it's still very yeah. effective yeah, yeah. at major institutions. So Well, it's not going to stop ransomware if you ignore it. <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, you, you, you install this stuff maybe locally, and then it tries to the – other, the other night, a few – a few warnings popped up for me and I'm like, okay, I click them off. And then I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's open that back up. I should probably go through and see what those warnings are, you know? Um, and so the human, you know, we become the weak link on, is there, I mean, we haven't talked about this in a while, a year or two, maybe. Are there any, as we think about, like, I just don't even answer my phone. So no one's going to get me that way. Yeah. But, but as we think about maybe that the the email, um, you know, that's that seems seemingly getting more and more sophisticated. 
Are there things from an average consumer perspective? You know, I'm, I feel fairly protected at work. We're doing a lot of things. We test ourselves all the time. You know, part of pen testing has become, I get, <laughs> I get these crazy texts, <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, this is the CEO. Can you send me some gift cards? Right. They're just testing us yeah. right at that point. Um, the first time I got that, it was really weird. I'm like, because my first thought was, why is he, why is he calling me on a holiday? Why is he asking me for gift cards? And then it, for a minute, I was like, well, I'm not doing this stuff. And then <laughs> I was like, oh, wait a minute. I, this is a, this is one of those automated, or this is one of those attacks, right? When we think about those, Christian, are, are there better tools? Have we gotten, do we have some things to help us with that? To, especially in the world of email, email is terrible. Like it's awful. It is. And you know, I, there's a lot of, uh, easy, easier sets of options that are now coming in with a lot of the managed email services. So even like Google workspaces, like if you're using that to host your own domain and then email, um, they have a lot of nice features to make it easy to help customers turn on SPF and DKIM signing, which I highly recommend anyone validate that either they've turned that on or their mail provider is doing that for them because what that does is actually prevents your email from being directly spoofed. So like if I wanted to try to spoof like Jim at theaverageguy.tv and those records weren't in place, I might actually be able to spoof your exact name and your exact email. Now, if you reply to that spoof, it's going to go to actual Jim but I may have gotten you to do something by sending you something looking like I'm the real gym. Right. Um, so SPF and DKIM is a really just simple way to shut that down. Um, but, you know, um, a lot of the Google Workspace tools are including things now that are commonly deployed in enterprises, right? So um, one of the example kind of simple things that I think is really effective is having uh, companies and or Google Workspace add the external badge to either either email subject lines or it's like a tag that will show up in the Gmail interface. And what that really does is it lets you know as someone visually consuming that email message that like, hey, this email is coming from external to your organization. Because now what a lot of people are doing is they're, they're compromising some email or figuring out names and, and making very similar mailboxes where they'll still represent themselves as, as someone in your organization with the email that's clearly not from your organization, but it may look like, oh, he's deciding to use his personal Gmail today instead of his corporate address. Um, and so that external badge really helps because then you can train your employees to say basically, hey, when I see the external tag, um, I should at least have some cautioned or heightened alert that this message didn't come from within my organization and that what I might be receiving in this message is not something I should act on, right? So, and then there's things that are more just common sense, right? Um, I've seen a lot of local churches and parishes in the area be impacted by um, staff that didn't have these tools, were very easily convinced to do something on behalf of what they thought was someone else in their organization. And before you know it, they're changing bank account and routing number information to go to places it shouldn't. And again, kind of same concepts as like the MGM attack, for example, it is rumored that it took about 10 minutes on a phone call after the uh, hacker group found 
um, the appropriate employee on LinkedIn, use that to create their persona, call in the help desk and get the initial foothold. I mean, you know, most of those tests that they're doing with phishing, they're a bit obvious. A lot of the ones that are out there are very sophisticated. They're going to they're gonna do a lot of research to make it super personalized when they're going after high value targets. Um, and so, you know, a common practice should be use these tools to basically, yeah, continue to receive emails from whoever you want to receive. But whenever someone is telling you to do an action over email, you should have some tools that either tell you that it's safe to act upon that or, hmm, I don't have enough here to be confident. I'm going to just pick up the phone and call. And so an example I give to a lot of the organizations I work with is like, if anyone's telling you to do anything with money, no matter how legit it does or doesn't look, because a lot of times it's not stuff about gift cards. It starts out as small, innocuous administrative stuff like, hey, you're overdue on this invoice or, um, you know, hey, we need to move the funds here for this purchase. And they know it's a real purchase coming up, right? Um that's your spidey sense to just say, okay, I'm going to pick up the phone. And if so-and-so really does want me to do this, they're not going to be angry or upset if I call to verify, right? Um, so I think common sense goes a long way. Um, but the tools are, are getting better in the email space. Um, it's still amazing, though, how much um, we trust doing privileged actions or things based on an email, or even in some cases, a phone conversation I wouldn't trust, right? Like, depending on what's involved in that negotiation, like do it in person. Um, and it's much harder to fool people in person, not impossible, uh, but helps avoid a lot of this. And I think it's, it's an interesting statement in social psychology, how trusting we are of people and how trusting we want to be of people over the technology platforms yeah. that we use. Well, it's so complicated. Sometimes we go the, oversimplified route of, okay, I'm just going to trust it because I don't want to think about it. It's just too much to think about. And then, or uh, we don't do anything. I mean, I, I know folks, they won't, they don't, won't and don't trust anything. I mean, I'm, and I'm being really even careful. I mean, I do have an account that I send all the ads to and, you know, there's sites I trust and I know, and I see their marketing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not going to get spoofed, but I don't know for sure. And so that's probably one of those reminders. Be a little more careful about, you know, the deals, the deals that are coming in. I haven't seen a lot of those being spoofed. Oftentimes it's, I get this one, hey, Microsoft from Microsoft, air quotes. <laughs> Someone's trying to change the phone number on your on your account, right? That's what been one real, real common lately. And um, yeah, so it's, it's well, it's it's a good reminder. I've, and I, you know, we went through an era where we we just opened up a bunch of email accounts because they were all free, you know? Yeah. And I think I probably have six or seven, <laughs> you know, I'm down to six or seven and changing from them is painful sometimes, you know, we, we, you know, it's like, I'm still, I'm still, I shouldn't admit this, but I'm still working on the cutover from last pass to Bitwarden. There's just so much. There were like 600 things I had to literally, right? And I'm getting to the point now where I'm just getting ready to export it out of LastPass, close that account. I have all the all the important things moved over, but I had all these ancillary things. Now, the other thing is you could just always go back and say, well, uh, I'll just reset the password if I need it. You could do that as well. So, um, yeah, it's super complicated, man. It's it's. 
No, it absolutely yeah. is. At least on the password storage front, Bitwarden has continued to be a game changer. It's been a uh, a great win this year in terms yeah. of yeah. technology improvement um, for the average guy. Um, but you know, when you talk about the free email services or any email service, one one other um, suggestion that I have for folks that I don't know that I've actually ever talked about on our our show before is um, email aliases are a damn powerful tool in your toolkit. And um, a lot of times what I'm doing now is I've set up a domain and I have all these different inbox aliases, so to speak. So like, um, let's say you have like orders at jimcollison.com, right? And you start putting orders at jimcollison.com and anything where like you're going to buy something. That's cool, but if your email gets like leaked or data breached or whatever, and then you start getting spam and all these other things, you can't really track like where did it come from because I've given this email out everywhere. Um, so then you start doing what's called aliasing, which is you don't need to create creating inboxes or aliases in the actual system. Um, you can use the plus sign character, the period, like you have to look at what your mail provider supports. But for example, I use a plus sign. So then it'll be like orders plus, um, best buy at jimcollison.com. And that wasn't, I didn't have to set anything up on my mail server. I didn't have to add any new inboxes or any new aliases. But when all of a sudden I start getting weird stuff showing up in my inbox that I know I didn't sign up for, I didn't deal with. I know exactly where that email got leaked from, and I can I can basically zilch that entire uh, email alias in my mail configuration to say never deliver anything that comes in over this again. And so, increasingly, I've moved to a system where I only am handing out aliases to people, and then I control and protect my underlying mailboxes because all the stuff that's auto consuming my address information is coming through an alias and it doesn't look, you know, I was never really a big fan of some of the, like the temp email boxes or the weird aliasing services. They just were kind of cheap, but it's a whole nother service. You got to go check and or right. switch over to or whatever. Right. Right. But you know, if you're on a commodity mail provider like Gmail, or if you even you're on your hosting your own domain, right. You point your domain to Google mail services and you can do kind of the same capabilities. So, um, it is something that I have really taken to heart in the last few years, and it's helped tremendously manage my understanding of how my email is getting out there and, and how I can best filter and protect my information coming in. Such a great way. That's such a great way to do that. I need to start doing that as well. By the way, uh, jimcollison.com, I don't own it. So if you want to spam that <laughs> as much as you can, <laughs> this poor guy, and he's a real estate guy. Sorry. Morgan. I've, been tr- I've been trying to get jimcollison.com forever. I thought at one point I even set one of those alerts to watch, see if the domain ever, but he's no, he's, he's here. He is right here. That's you just have to make him an offer. He can't refuse. Jim. There, there he is. That's there's, that's the other, that's the, the other, other Jim, not the real JC. Don, Don, Don. <laughs> Love it. Isn't that crazy? He has no idea. We're talking about, we're talking about him on this podcast right now. And I just showed his picture online. So he's a real estate guy. I'm sure he appreciates the uh, out of out of Hillsboro, Oregon. I'm sure, he appreciates the uh, the advertising. So, anything else on that, Christian? Before we before we switch? no, I think that's that's a good wrap. 
for I for think email. I think uh, yeah, a great suggestion. Um, I think uh, we'll wrap this on Christian's Corner. Then now, if you you had to be listening for a long time to know Christian's Corner, this was where we would let Christian just kind of go on a, on a particular topic. Oftentimes around Windows. I mean, I think that's funny. We we spent some time. And we haven't talked about Windows in a long time, but. You, you, when we were talking about ideas of things to talk about on the show, you said, well, we could talk about Windows 11. And I knew if you wanted to talk about it, there was probably something we should know about it. And I've been listening to, you know, I still listen to Windows Weekly, so I've been keeping up. I have two Windows 11 boxes here. I've actually got a, the the one of the main machines. I moved over to Windows 11 because it has the TPM capabilities. And so I can do a Windows 11 VMs as well. But talk a little bit about wh- why did you bring that up? And as we think, because we're going to, listen, support for Windows 10 ends in 2025. Now, it's going to get extended a couple times. We know that, right? But but eventually we got to move. What do, you, what do you know that we don't know? Well, so first I got really excited because I, I read something that after like 38 years of the MS Paint app, they finally decided to add layers and transparency. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, if I'm reading a news article like this, what else is going on in Windows 11 that I've just filtered out of my life for the last three years? But I actually almost fell out of my chair when I read that. Um, So that was an interesting enough investment that I'm like, okay, like what else is going on these days? And um, today, uh, Microsoft announced that they are uh, bringing Microsoft Copilot um, as a new offering within um, Windows 11, and it works as an app or kind of works as probably like a super sophisticated version of Clippy for your desktop. And what it's really, it's powered off of OpenAI Dolly 3 model. And um, I think it's the next evolution of the kind of weird Cortana experience of Windows 10 era which I was never about. I was like, get that stuff out of my operating system, disable all the things, block all the endpoints in PFSense. Like I never want to deal with it. Um, but one of the things I discussed in the post show on last time Gadget Geeks was how I thought that operating systems had really not progressed in, in many respects at the speed that I would have hoped for the consumer. And, you know, an example is like, you think about File Explorer in um, Windows and how that's just, Pretty probably if if you really stop and think about it, File Explorer is probably one of the most commonly used apps um, that there is in Windows. You probably use it, you know, as much as you do your browser, and don't even really think about it. But how much has File Explorer really evolved in the last ten years? Like, yeah, Windows Search has gotten better. Windows uh, ability to index has gotten better, but like fundamentally, File Explorer has not changed a lick. Um, And you would think that with all the evolution, especially in the AI, the NLP, the text analysis, the sentiment analysis, that, you know, I'd be able to go to File Explorer and, you know, search something like, um, show me um, pictures of my daughter's 16th birthday as the search term. And it would know how to pull that data back and, and show you those images and not because you had to sit there doing data tagging and being a data scientist because, but because no, like it's, it's using AI, it's integrating it within the metadata, it's automatically generating the metadata and it's indexing that. And, you know, Apple in some ways has gotten 
somewhat close in certain select areas. For example, if you own an iPhone or a Mac, it's very good at you just throw photos at it. And once it knows who someone is once, man, it, it, it goes on a tear. And before you know it, if someone says, hey, can you get me photos for so-and-so for this event coming up? Or maybe it's a wedding, maybe it's a graduation party. And you go on a you go on a Apple-based system, and you can do that exercise in like thirty seconds. Um, Windows, you still can't do that in thirty seconds, by the way. Um, <laughs> so I thought to myself, gee, like Copilot is it? Maybe you know, it's it's a like all things Microsoft. It's a double-edged sword. I'm excited that they're finally bringing AI to the client and the consumer. I'm sad that. I really think this is moving Windows 11 towards the kind of what I call the the cloud portal to Microsoft Azure. I really see it as we're we're hitting that full cycle again where everything used to be on the mainframe then everyone had to have their personal computing revelation and now everything's swinging back. But we're finding a lot of these AI models once they're like well-trained and understood and tested you can run much smaller versions of the model with much less compute and get 90% of the bang for your buck. Um, and we've seen this um, in DEF CON, for example, a, a gentleman did a demonstration of um, video transcription, which, as you know, like you upload a podcast or whatnot, and you're paying some premium service, you're uploading the file, you're giving the data to them, it's pretty accurate. It gets it wrong sometime, et cetera. But like, okay, but this guy is running a 256 kilobyte binary that has the limited trained data model based on OpenAI spec. You can go and download it yourself. And it does video transcription locally without an internet connection. Like he pulled his internet, he disabled it, proved it as part of his demo. And it's rock solid. Like it gets it right. And I'm like, damn, if we can compile that into less of a megabyte executable, why aren't we pushing this stuff in native libraries and making these operating systems, you know, really get to the next level? And of course, the corporate interest is a big answer in all of that, right? Like they want you to be interactive with their cloud. They want you to have to upload your data to those environments so that they can make their products better. They want you to be buying into the subscription ecosystem. Um, so, you know, I, we say, oh, well, Windows is basically free these days. And like, yeah, it, it, um, your your entry into the operating system is free and that's about it. And, you know, it's like Spirit Airlines. They'll, they'll let you cross the threshold into the airplane for about 60 bucks. And then about another 240 bucks later, they might think about letting you off that airplane too. Um, so I'm excited by some of the announcements. There's no way in hell that I'm getting off of Windows 10 until I go kicking and screaming. It'll be much the way I, I went straight from Windows 7 to Windows 10 on my main workstation. It looks like I'm set up to be kicking and screaming all the way to the Windows 10 end of life. Um, I shed several tears when Windows Server 2012 R2 is, you know, rest in peace. It's got about a week to go before it hits its end of life for security patching. Um, and so we're starting to hit that that turning point. And, you know, um, my rant is to say I, I feel mixed feelings about these announcements. Um, and it's certainly not at a place yet where it appeals me, uh, appeals to me by any point uh, or any stretch of the imagination. But I find it interesting that they are actually starting to focus on features again, which feels good. For a while, I was like, 
who, why do I need to use Windows 11? Like, what does it do for me? Like, oh, you got frame rates faster on DirectX, whatever number Windows 11 on is like, great. Like, good for you guys. But like, it fundamentally to me didn't seem like anything more than Microsoft's grab to the next thing to move you towards their subscriptions and their cloud services. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with this co-pilot. They keep, you know, tinkering around. Like, it still amazes me that we're in Windows 11 and you have the classic control panel that, you know, goes all the way back to Windows XP. You can still get to it. And there's still things that are not in the native new UI that you can only get to going through that old control panel. Now, Dinosaur... In, in in my brain that like gloms onto that thing absolutely loves that um but it's just it's, <laughs> it's really weird to me um how much of those big mm-hmm. uh congru- discongruities there are in the in the os and well, so well, listen we we have tabbed file explorer now right but we don't have edit in the right in a right click you know you got to go right click yeah. show more options then it brings up the Windows 10 dialog box where you can click at it. Now I'm sure that's going to change. And at some point we're going to listen, Windows 11 is going to be 12 here before we know it. Coke Pilot will probably change the full rollout of that will probably be Windows 12 just to be just to be transparent. I don't think there's much life for 11. It's a weird number to begin with. <laughs> it's, you know, it's odd. It's 11. Like nobody Nobody wants to be well, they skip nine, so you know it didn't yeah. help. Yeah, nobody wants to be odd, right? You know, from that from that regard. So yeah, I mean, as I'm looking at it right now, I was like, oh yeah, it's got tabbed file explorer. That's pretty now. They didn't fix anything about file explorer. It's still the clunky, <laughs> slow, like it, it it literally is the same code that it has been since probably yeah. Windows 7, right? Um, I just don't know if they've that made they've made that many changes, but yeah, you got to right click, show more options, edit. edit. If I want to edit a batch file, right click, show more options, edit. Are you kidding me? Like now, is it that big of a deal to do one more click? No, but is it that clunky? Yeah, it's pretty clunky. You know, so it's now. Is it for me? Does it? Um, change my mind about upgrading to windows 11 no i'm gonna go to it because it's the next thing um i'll go to 12 when that when that comes up i've got it on a limited like i said i think i have it on three computers now everything else is running 10 i'll run those till i absolutely can't run them anymore you know which i don't think is i think those i think we're probably still we have two years till till uh advertise support and then the Windows 7 model was three years beyond that. So, you know, you're like, oh, okay, so we still have five probably. So, yeah, yeah, kind of kind of interesting. I think, Christian, some of the interesting stuff, too, is there's some rumors that Windows 12 and ARM will be a better implementation. They've working, been working behind the scenes to make that a better experience. And what what are your thoughts on cutting Intel out and going arm from an operating system standpoint, knowing we're doing more things in the cloud. I, you know, I think uh, Intel's been in a kind of precarious position in my mind um, over the last year. You know, it's, it's clear that AMD ate a little bit into their consumer retail side. 
Uh, it's very clear that ARM is a growing market share, both in the enterprise and in uh, small fab computing. And so I think it's, you know, Intel really was the giant in the room for such a long time that the diversification you're seeing in chip manufacturing is pretty stunning. Um, and you're already seeing ARM on a variety of platforms. I think it's it's a natural choice to see Windows come to ARM. Um, and so that wouldn't surprise me really in the least bit. And I think for traditionally you think about ARM and you're thinking about phones and laptops or, or iPads and, you know, handheld stuff as it's, wow, this is really um, coming a long way. Um, but now you're starting to see that even in the desktop and server environments, ARM is starting to have an answer um, at a much cheaper price point. So I personally think that the more diversification there is in the chip manufacturing process, the better technology we're going to get at better prices. Um, so I think they're doing amazing work. Um, it remains to be seen. You know, I've, I've felt this way in the past where AMD has come out with something great, but then Intel kind of, you know, let them do that a little bit until they came back and crushed them um, and resoundingly. But you know, in many ways, I thought they were. I thought they were going to do that after Ryzen. Like AMD had a big win with Ryzen, and I thought, gee, Intel's just holding back their next crushing blow. And it really was more of a soft whimper, um, which was really the first time I thought, huh, like maybe the Intel giant has found its peak finally. Um, and I think as you see ARM, and also as you see um, what we're doing with the AI chips and building chips specifically focused on AI computing. I think ARM has a huge opportunity there. Um, if you look at what the cloud companies are doing and building their own chips and customizing them to the types of workloads that run, um, I think the days of x86-64 Intel being the dominant platform yeah, their their market share is gonna it's gonna take a long time where they're an equal player, but um, I definitely think that these kind of alternative uh, brands are gonna grow and and eat quite a bit of market share, especially driven by the fact that with AI, people are looking at how do we stand out as unique. And I think what chips and what hardware the algorithms run on is a big area where people are going to try to distinguish themselves. And so absolutely having something that's not a Intel or NVIDIA answer is going to be something that a lot of people try to make a play for. Yeah. 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 That's, that's good thoughts. I mean, the, you, you talk about the diversi the diversification on the chipset side. And of course you have Apple doing it's completely its own thing in a lot of ways. Um, and then you just mentioned NVIDIA and they're, I mean, they're kind of in a place, they got some, they have a little bit of money. They've got, they're doing some interesting things. I think they're, they're part of this AI equation in, in a lot of, I mean, in a lot of ways, right. They're powering a lot of AI. Um, so that, that it, it's, it, well, and even, you know, even Intel trying to come out with a GPU is an interesting move in some regards, right? Yeah. You know, and so there's some, you know, what will what will we be talking about from an OS standpoint 
and is does ARM change things from a security posture? Certainly, you and I have talked about Intel's problems in the past, right? From a security standpoint, does ARM change that at all? Does that does it reduce the attack surface if we begin to go that direction from a device's perspective? Are we going to get to a spot where really our phones just power? Like we've been talking about this for a long time. Microsoft was there a while ago, didn't work. Maybe it'll take some more time, but our phones power our desktop experience for the most part, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and if and if folks are really successful in um, making desktops less and less prevalent for the average guy, um, ARM chips being the kind of primary compute on the mobile platforms will play all a bigger role as they continue to get faster and faster. Um, yeah. And- interact with AI both on and off platform. Yeah. And what does it mean when AI data sets begin to become localized again? Because we know that's going to happen, right? We know right today they're in the cloud or they're somewhere else. We know there's going to be situations where those are going to get pushed farther to the edge to be used, right? Uh, Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Really, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what is that? Because we always think, oh, processing power at the local level is not going to be needed anymore. Well, maybe not this cycle, but when it cycles back around and we need to get some of that processing power back to the edge, and there's an advantage to it. it that always drives it, right? When there's an, an advantage to the end user to have that power on the edge and, and to be able to do things with it, okay, well, that becomes a little bit of a different... I mean, game streaming has changed what they've done to get good at game streaming has certainly changed the way we look at remote desktop or or remote computing in that way, right? But that doesn't mean it's always best to have all the computing power uh, centralized and not have it on the edge. You think about cars and planes. (laughs) And planes. (laughs) You want the computing power on the edge, right? You yeah, know? and you have to be able to run it in environments where you're not always going to have a persistent connection. Right. Um, yeah. 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 It's 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 interesting to say the least. Tony, a couple comments. Uh, Joe Joe says the the um, some of the changes in Windows have driven him to use keyboard shortcuts because the the mouse experience has gotten kind of jankety in Windows strange. Windows yeah. Eleven. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's a little less. I, I'm, I'm like, I think I'm pretty intuitive with this stuff, and I'm kind of like, okay, where did that go? <laughs> like, where did they move that thing to? Now, search, search for those things has never been better, right? There's, you can easily go down and search for it, type it in, and find it uh, pretty easily. But there's a lot of changes going on. Tony said, uh, worked part time in the mountains recently. They didn't have my dictation account set up. I used dictation from Windows, copied and pasted it to the EMR, adapt and overcome. Yeah, you can do that. You certainly can do that as well. Um, he goes on to say they're switching to a new electronic record, so it's not a lot of effort to troubleshoot the old one. And boy, it's old. Looks like Windows 2000 or 2000 Mac software. And um, yeah, well, there's some. I there. I think there's some pretty sizable changes coming on the Windows side. And they're they're doing some things depending on who you are. You like it or you hate it, just like everything else, you yeah. know, from that perspective. But I, I think there's some changes. Um, pa- Panos went to 
Amazon. What's up with that? You guys, did you know that that panels? Did you have, did had you heard that? I I didn't. So that tells you what I know. I, yeah, I um, think it just came out today. So it's I think it's it's brand it's brand new. But Panos apparently wasn't happy with some of the cutbacks on Surface. Um, I, I think eventually Microsoft's going to abandon Surface. But so maybe he saw the writing on the wall. So he's hanging out. Over there, yeah. so, like good for Panos. Yeah, good for him. Good for him. Get swallowed up by the giant, by the giant. Well, Christian, we did it. We got through it once again. Anything, anything you're looking ahead on that that is that you, you haven't you know you haven't put all the stuff together yet, but that you're keeping an eye on ahead. Um, generally speaking, in a topic yeah. area, or yeah, just generally, um, like what are you keeping your eye on? that that that's going on i'm watching to see if um open ai continues to lose or gain market share and i think because that is the default thing everyone gravitated towards it'll be really interesting to watch now the bifurcation of what i call the spin-off technologies of that so i am watching that pretty closely i'm also watching how they're evolving what they offer in their free version from their premium version and understanding like those distinctions and those differences i think that's really important um and i'm also starting to look uh more seriously at um how are we in the computing industry going to deal with the hallucination problem? Because when you look at what's going on with AI, there's yeah. some areas where you really don't have to worry about hallucination. So if you're having the AI write code from known open source libraries, like I don't, I never just outright trust the code, but I can independently verify it very quickly and it can save hours of time especially if you're trying to learn something new by only reading documentation as a human versus studying examples that are working backwards from questions. It's incredibly effective. Um, but one of the challenges that AI is going to have to overcome in the next couple of years to really move to the next level is handling um, the hallucination problem. And for those not familiar with that terminology, it really is just a fancy way of saying that AI seems to be very good at making stuff up. Um, and it does it more so in some areas than others. Um, a good example of this is in the legal community. Um, there have been all sorts of wild stories you can go read or hear about where lawyers have been submitting documents to the court. And, you know, instead of writing their legal briefs, they have the AI write it. It's almost like classic school plagiarism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and then, you know, uh, when I was going through school, they had launched a service called turnitin.com to catch the cheaters, right? Um, <laughs> it's like we're doing this in our legal system now, but with yeah. open AI writing the legal briefs. Right. Um, and so it's been a big problem. Um, but one of the way one of the reasons it's been so easy to catch is that the AI was making up entire legal theories based on case law that didn't exist or precedents that didn't exist and extrapolating in a way that would never make sense in a, in a legal argument. Um, and this applies to many other areas. The legal example is a good one though, um, because it shows how in that topic area, it is much uh, more, the AI is much more vulnerable to inaccuracy than in other areas. And so, I think this is a matter of when, not if, but 
it's an open question to me how we're going to go about solving that problem while also dealing with the traditional concerns around how do you bias or not bias training algorithms and making the AI reflect certain personas or certain viewpoints. And that is a problem, but the hallucination problem is almost a subset or an add-on problem um, that I think is going to need to make much more progress in the next couple of years before it reaches the next level of trust um, by the end user. And currently there aren't any, you know, silver bullet strategies out there that address this problem. Um, so I'm watching to see um, early movers in this space that say they're starting to tackle that problem head on. And I think that'll be a good indicator that we're moving past just the concept of generative AI into generative AI that has high degrees of accuracy. Yeah, I, I think the development of AI is following human development in, in a lot of ways. And that, that, you know, we, we began with just in put stuff in, get stuff out. It's a baby, put food in, you poop out, right? Whatever. Right. It's just, it responds to don't, you know, stop, don't, uh, you know, direct commands. We, we may be in this early childhood phase where it's starting to learn to talk. It's starting to make things like it's starting to put concepts together. It has ideas, but when it gets lost, it's smart enough just to start making things up or to, to, to try to say, well, I know this, I'll try to make that like this, even though that's experience would say that's, oh, that's horribly wrong. Right. <laughs> Don't yep. do those kinds of things. And I, I still think um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't because it, the human experience is pain and that we learn from that. It's a response back. Right. And it's not all learnings, not pain-based, but, but some of it is, <laughs> and, and it, the, the, there's no, there's no, that's, that's not built in in any way. It has no good. I think we're struggling with the feedback, like what's good feedback. I also wonder if, having humans teach it is the right thing, right? I mean, we're, we're, we wonder why the software is flawed because we're training it and we're horribly flawed, you know, in, in a lot of ways. Yep. And so we're expecting this perfect, like, oh, this should be perfect. Well, wait a minute. Who, who, who trained it on this horribly complex problem that we're, we're working on? Are you perfect? Like, do you, you know, so anyways, I think we're, we're at this, seven or eight year old kind of thing. And maybe the next phase is an angry teenager. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out when we have AI acting like an angry, entitled, um, disrespectful, moody teenager. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Not you. You and I will both be making tinfoil hats at that point. Oh, it's, 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 listen, there's some things it's really good at. It's just a word calculator right now. I mean, it's just really good. There are some areas of where it can be super helpful, especially in the areas of like translations, it compiling things, having some basic ideas around stuff, getting, you know, getting, uh, like, hey, give me a list of, you know, I want to, I want to make nachos but I don't want regular nachos. Give me four different nacho recipes and man, it will just, it will just crank that, you know, yeah. it's really good at that. So it'll be interesting to see what co-pilot 
just to bring this back around, like I'm really interested, like what's that really going to do for the average consumer? Listen, the copilot they use in visual studio writes code. Right. What are we like? Is the average consumer in windows really ready for not that we're going to expect it to write code. I don't think that's what it's going to do, but I don't know. I'm just super skeptical. The co- I think they're trying to put Copilot in everything. Like, yes. You know, like here's a mouse with Copilot. <laughs> You're like, I don't need Copilot in the mouse. You know? So I don't know. You'll find out when you do. It'll it'll <laughs> it'll tell you why you need to, why you need it in the mouse, Jim. Oh There's my god. You're just like you're like I don't know. Maybe maybe they'll have copilot enabled monitors. You know, since John's hanging out out there, co copilot enabled monitors where it it'll tune itself to the color thing and it's do. It's just you know. gonna help you move your mouse cursor to the buttons you really need to be <laughs> clicking, Jim. And and you don't know what those shock, buttons are. Love yeah. shock shock uh, yeah. response. It's like no no go that way. No 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 no. No, it, it it'll just say move. That's what it'll do. It'll sit there, move, and then it'll just start moving the mouse for you so you can have it do its thing. Well, anyways, good conversation. Christian, always great to have you, uh, uh, have you on. Can you hang out one second as I close this thing up? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Couple reminders on the way out. We do this every show, but of course, you know, the average guy.tv. And we made it all the way through a show without talking about Maple Grove Partners. So we'll throw it in here. If you need high, uh, if you need reliable high speed hosting from people that you know and you trust, of course, that's Christian. Check out maplegrovepartners.com. Plans still starting at 10 bucks. Is that 10 bucks? Uh, 10, bucks a, 10 bucks a thing. And Christian can do just about anything. So check it out. If you need something, give them a call. Or check it out on maplegrovepartners.com. Uh, if you want to send me an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can uh, join the Discord group, theaverageguy.tv slash Discord. You can leave a message if you're looking for a, um, a just an easy way, 30-second message. You can call it in and leave a question or whatever, a comment. Um, go out to homegadgetgeeks.com. There's a little voice button down on the bottom right-hand corner, a little microphone. Click it and leave me a message. Love to hear from you on that as well. We are live every Thursday, 8 p.m. Central, 9 Eastern, out here at theaverageguy.tv slash live. I got a couple shows lined up. I know Bob and Ryan are coming back here pretty quick. Let me bring that up really fast just to – I've been keeping track of shows since show 100, and we're at 585. So it takes me a while to get there. Christians, this week – I actually have an opening next week. I may be calling if you're listening to this – Jay. I may be calling to fill in for next week. Bob and Ryan, the week after that, Dave McCabe is checking in after that. So we've got some shows coming up. We'd love to have you out here and then join us live. Big thanks, Katie, Jay, Brian, John, uh, Tony. Uh, I saw Ken out there a little bit earlier. Joe was out there. Uh, Thank you guys for coming out in the chat room. Appreciate you guys. And we'll do it again, I think, next Thursday. Thanks for coming out, everybody. With that, we'll say goodbye, everybody.